If you're new or haven't been around for a while, um, let me tell you that our pastor abandoned us. <laughs> now, I, I, you laugh, but some of you are expressing that that's the way you feel, and we need to be conscious of that. If you don't know, he ascended to the throne. <laughs> and is now a general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene. So we can forgive him, we're working on it. But we are in a series um, on what it means to be a church. And so um, I'm preaching about twice a month and then our incredibly gifted staff is preaching on other weeks. But we've decided that all the way to Advent, we would be preaching on this particular theme of what it means to be a church. And so today, our book is Ephesians, as we also are working through all the books of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 7 and then go even into chapter 4. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. By the way, we are doing NIV today because I like it. particularly some verses in here, which I will highlight. So if you're all confused and you finally, after years, went out and bought a common English Bible because we seem to use that all the time, I'm back to the NIV, but probably just for today. Okay, let's start again. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Skipping to verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. <clears throat> Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I have some introductory remarks to make at the beginning of this sermon. I struggled not to come up with a sermon. I actually wrote two of them. But I struggled sort of like God and Jacob, where Jacob walked away with a limp. Two, even though I feel strongly now that this is the sermon that I need to preach, I still am wondering whether or not it will make an impact. It is a lot more complicated than the other sermon that I wrote this week. It had three points, a great opening illustration. And I half wonder in the end if maybe I should have preached that one. But hang in here with me, okay? Three, I am a really unique person. <laughs> I should explain that. First of all, for all of you who follow the Enneagram, I am a four. Some people laugh because they know. A four, let me explain to you, is somebody who desires to be unique. And unique in sort of depth and contemplation and connection with the earth and the arts. I am unique. I knew I had a problem. When I started realizing that I reveled in the fact that my dog is gifted with a unique personality and handsomeness. <laughs> I mean, that's really bad when you revel in the fact that your dog is unique, right? What I probably mean is that I've never felt like I fit anywhere, not completely. I played on the boys' little league team when I was 10 years old. 
I played the trumpet in middle school when all the other girls were flautists and clarinetists. I was only one of two women religion majors in my class in college. The other one became a missionary. I was unique in my seminary classes, what, which consisted of a sea of male faces. I was the only woman pastor on my district in Maine in 1989. And when I started here at NNU 26 years ago, I was only the third woman professor in any religion or Christian ministries department in the Nazarene schools in the USA. The last one was in the 70s and the third, um, the, and the 30s before that. It's not just the female thing. I'm unique. Some of you might have heard I'm obsessed with cows. I'm often told that once you get to know me, I'm nothing like what you thought. My son is constantly telling me how weird I am. And I think it's true. Probably one of the weirdest things that has been brought to mind this week is besides preaching to my teddy bears when I was little, is that I started asking spiritual and theological questions very, very young. I challenged my Sunday school teachers. I kind of think that's why they promoted me from fourth to sixth grade class in Sunday school. My volunteer youth worker nicknamed Susie Sunshine had no idea what to do with my theological broodings. And to this day, I'd rather be swimming around in my head in the thoughts of Wesleyan theology and Christian history more than about anything else. I do realize that that is not normal. All this to say that I have a confession to make this morning. But ironically, I don't think it's a unique confession. I think it might be something that many of you share. Here we go. The doctrine of the Trinity has never excited me. The most important doctrine of Christianity, the center of all that we believe, the essence of our identity, the foundation for every other doctrine has always kind of bored me. And then I found myself needing to do an in-depth study, a scholarly study last year of what John Wesley believed about the Trinity. And I was intrigued more than that. I was moved. And this is what he believed. Wesley refused to insist on anyone adopting a particular explanation because all theoretical explanations of the Trinity are not in the Bible. 
Most theoretical explanations are based on philosophical metaphysics, which are not in the Bible and which can shift. And then three, he insisted that the essence of the truth about the Trinity is that it is concerned about our salvation. It is not supposed to be an esoteric, abstract idea. In other words, although we will continue to attempt to define it, even just to comprehend it, what we are supposed to do is to encounter it. And that encounter takes us to the very heart of what we are. The title of the sermon is What We Are Meant For, What We Are Made For. And it has been my own personal pursuit in the last few months to encounter the Trinitarian God. The book of Ephesians is somewhat elusive. In the earliest manuscripts, there is no attachment to the church at Ephesus. Many scholars believe that it wasn't addressed to a specific church at, like Ephesus, but rather it was probably a circular letter it was sent around to many different churches. Rather than addressing specific circumstances, it reads more like general spiritual encouragement, helpful to all who read and hear it. This harmonizes with the fact that all the chapters in Ephesians blend together as one cohesive whole. Ephesians moves through its themes as layers on an intricate painting or as connected lines of poetry. And I had a hard time picking the text. And then when I did, I thought to myself, I can't preach from Ephesians 3 without chapter 2 or chapter four, for that matter. And Ephesians two is based on chapter one, and four is exemplified in five. In other words, we'd probably gain a great deal from just reading the whole book together today, which is what was originally intended. That was actually my third option as I was wrestling with God and limping around. But I do want to highlight chapter 3 because it is one of the few places in Scripture where we find the three persons of the Trinity. But they are all mentioned in our passage. If you didn't know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but rather our central idea based on an interpretation of scripture that shows us each unique individual who's sharing Godhood.
Paul begins chapter 3 by saying that a great mystery has been revealed to him. In fact, this mystery has been hidden from other generations. But Paul knows the mystery, and here it is. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus. What was once a secret is now made known, and it is made known through the church that all of us, through faith, may approach God with freedom and with confidence. There is no us and them, but we are all one in Christ because we are all one with Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that just as Jesus was in God, that we would be in God, that all of us together would be in God and unified in God. And I will be bold enough to say today that this is what we were made for. I am convinced that we are created for relationships, deep, life-giving relationships. Many different disciplines understand this, psychology, sociology, anthropology. But particularly in theology, we are created in the image of God. And Wesleyans define the image of God as the capacity to love and to be loved in relationships. <coughs> we almost instinctually are searching for a place to belong. I believe that the great plague of our day is loneliness. Even though we are connected, particularly through technology, as never before, even though we know everybody's business and hear everyone's opinion and are bombarded by constant advertisements that about what will truly satisfy us, that then lead us to the fear of missing out. We have never been lonelier or more isolated or more depleted of life-giving relationships. We were made for a real human connection <coughs> through our bodies, not just my avatar. But in good human fashion, one of our greatest tendencies is to escape what we need, to choose lesser things. We put walls around our hearts in fear, 
We shun real vulnerability. We can't risk moving toward what would truly satisfy us. And so many of us are frozen. And many of us are numb and about the business of keeping ourselves numb. We are made to belong somewhere. And we will be restless until we find it. We are made for community and intimacy and bonds of love. And I want to take this in two directions. First of all, we were made for community with God. And secondly, we were made for community with each other. Paul prays this amazing prayer. That's why I pick the passage. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. All three are mentioned. Father, Christ, Spirit, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a crazy idea. It's what makes us countercultural. And one of the ways to describe the Trinity that fills us is a word in the early church. The word is perichoresis, it's Greek. It's a really difficult word to define, but here's a shot at it. God is perichoretic, the word that means both movement and rest at the same time. In the Trinity, we imagine the persons mutually resting in one another and dancing around with each other, which I have a slide for that. In the eternal life of the Trinity, there are simultaneously absolute silence and a total whirlwind 
just like the eye of a hurricane, maybe. And more importantly, and probably different than what you have been taught, according to the Eastern Church that John Wesley liked a lot, there is no priority of the Father, but a total equality of the divine persons. We shouldn't even label them one, two, three. In the same vein, for all eternity, they mutually indwell each other and are giving themselves up for each other in selfless love. The perichoresis community of the Trinity is a canonic community. That's a big Greek word that means that the persons are eternally emptying themselves into one another. They do not lose their own unique identity by this, but rather strengthen it as each one builds the other up. And so by virtue of this relationship, the divine persons exist so intimately with one another, for one another, in one another, that they constitute a single, unique, and complete unity in themselves. They are one. Wow. That's a lot to take in. But I want to explain it to you because of the next point. Here's the most powerful part of this. This idea of perichoresis. They are not a closed system. In other words, this God created infinitely loves and seeks to fully save us by including us in the dance and in the rest. This God is an open, inviting, uniting, integrating community that invites us to be in them as Christ is in God. If sin is the separation of God's human creatures from their eternal source of life, then full salvation lies in our inclusion into the community of God's eternal life. The mystery is this. Jesus takes us, no matter who we are, into an intimate relationship with God through the Spirit as we attempt to abide in love we abide in God and God abides in us that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Whew. 
I should give you a break, but on we go. <laughs> Another Greek word, theosis. It's a word that's used often in the early church. It's also hard to define, but here's a stab at it. God came down to be like we are so that we can be taken up into God and be as he is. God in Christ became human that we might become like God. John Wesley was familiar with the word theosis, and he translated it a bit. It's the idea of sanctification. Maybe you've heard of that. You see, for what God assumes, God sanctifies and makes holy. We are participating in the eternal life community of God. And in that, we are made holy. But a reminder that you wouldn't hear from every sermon. I think that's why you keep asking me to do this. When we are participating in God and joining the dance, we are not lost. We are found. We do not lose our own unique identity, but are strengthened to be expressions of our full humanity. Unlike some mystics in the Middle Ages, we are not consumed into God, into nothingness. We are not erased. We are embraced and accepted and loved and transformed into all that we were made for in God. We find rest and we dance. In Spain, there is an ancient Catholic order that most have never heard of. They call themselves the Trinitarians. They were founded in the 11th century and are dedicated specifically to the liberation of prisoners. On the church, there is a depiction of Christ as the Redeemer and sitting on his throne. He has two individuals sitting very close to him in fellowship. And they have broken chains. Christ has liberated them and taken them up into his fellowship and into fellowship with each other. The liberation of prisoners named themselves the Trinitarians. 
Our salvation is liberation. Liberation from the sin that keeps us from what we were made to be. And yet in freedom and confidence because of Christ, all of us, no matter who we are, share and participate in the life of God. And we will be restless, as Augustine tells us, until we find that belongingness in God. If you think Christianity is a religion of oughts and shoulds and don'ts, you've missed the entire point. Christianity brings you to what you were created to be, and in that you find such a deep sense of belongingness. But there's more. You see, I am liberated so that I might love you, and you are liberated so that you might love me. And in a sense, we are in a Trinitarian relationship. God, me, and you. And God in Christ, through his self-emptying and love, brings us together in the bonds of love and peace. We are liberated for each other. We are a liberated people so that we can empty our lives into each other. We were made for this, to rest and to dance together. And so I dare to say with Paul, I urge you, he goes from the lofty to the practical. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the mystical dimension of the church that has been revealed to us. We belong not only to God, but to each other. To rest together, to dance together, we are church. I have some more slides. Let's put up the first one.
Well, that's self-explanatory, isn't it? <laughs> I just am, you know, this unique weirdo who doesn't feel like she belongs anywhere most of the time. Um, when I go out after church, you are resting with each other and you're dancing with each other, but there's a, a problem that I see, not to be critical. You form yourself into circles so that you can talk to each other and ask about each other's week. It's good stuff. It's what we should do. The problem is you probably talk to your friends and never talk to anyone else because you got the ritualistic circle making. One of the loneliest places in the world is to be in a church and not in a circle. I don't want us to look like that. I want us to look like the next slide. The one is joined the many. It is only because of God and his spirit that we are church. We don't form around our natural social inclinations. But Jew and Greek, and whatever your differences and uniquenesses are, we join and we embrace and surround the ones that belonging in God and that belonging to each other. This is what I want to see in the foyer. Now, don't take this too literally. I don't want Ralph Neal jumping on somebody's back after church. But this is a representation of that, that dance of God that we all belong to. People who teach preaching say that you need to give people something to do at the end. Do foyer differently today, just once. Try it out, see what happens. We rest together and we dance together and we are church together because we are one in Christ and Christ in us. Let's sing our anthem. If some of you want to dance, we won't look. It's okay. Won't you stand as we sing, build your kingdom here. And this is a prayer, but it's also a really fun prayer. So feel free to dance. Nazarene Church before, have you? Here we go.
In fact, it seems a bit impossible to accomplish what God set out for the church. But let me remind you, in form of a benediction, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all the people said, amen. <laughs> 